So we are preaching through some text in Isaiah for Advent, and today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 35. There's a lot of richness in Isaiah, and we are just kind of scraping the surface over these, these few weeks. Um, but as we are in this Advent season, one of the things that I love about Advent is that it helps us to see the, the big picture of Scripture. We look at the big picture of what God's redemption is from, from the beginning to the end. It's not just about the birth event of Jesus, but it's about what has God been doing throughout human history and where is he leading human history to. Um, so I hope that as we do this, that this helps this season resonate with your life better. I hope it helps you appreciate things better. And as, as Jeff talked about, you know, there's a joy that comes with understanding that and trusting Jesus in that time. So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Isaiah chapter 2, and Josh talked about uh, the kingdom from there, and we looked at the fact that there's a glorious future when Jesus is worshipped as king. And then last week, we looked at Isaiah 11 and the nature of the, of the Messiah's reign. And today, we're going to look at the effects of that reign, uh, especially for those that belong to him. Um, give you a little bit of background on, on Isaiah. Josh talked about this a little bit last week too, but the, the prophet Isaiah saw things and, and, and he proclaimed things that maybe he didn't himself even fully understand, but it's almost like he had a viewfinder and he would click it and God would show him a vision and he would proclaim this vision, he would, he would proclaim this prophecy and then click it again and here's another prophecy, here's another vision but the prophet himself didn't always have an exact understanding of timeline, how all that was related, how it would all play out. And he certainly didn't always communicate it to his hearers. But there was always an immediate impact, an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy. And there's also a later fulfillment of that prophecy. And so when you read Isaiah, sometimes it's a little bit hard to keep the timelines down. And so what I want to encourage you to do is you read through Isaiah to also go back and read through some of the historical books in the Bible. So, for example, our passage today is paralleled in 2 Kings. And you can see as you read through 2 Kings, uh, starting at about chapter 16, uh, through about the next seven or eight chapters, you can see what's happening here in Isaiah that we don't get all the details around if you just read Isaiah. Um, but to give you a little bit of background, Isaiah prophesied in Judah during the reign of four different kings, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He prophesied for a period of about 60 or 70 years. And this is after the split of the kingdom, uh, after Solomon, his, there's a, his, the kingdom is split in two. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital in the Samaria area. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital in Jerusalem. Um, and during Isaiah's ministry, Assyria is the military superpower on the stage, and they are brutal. They are absolutely brutal in the way that they uh, overtake countries and peoples and deport people, torture people, bring in their own people, and just eliminate entire cultures uh, and ship their own people in. And whoever they leave alive, they send back to Assyria and just wipe out cultures. And as Isaiah is prophesying in our text today to Judah, um, Assyria has already come and crushed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 and deported many of their people and ended their kingdom. Uh, Judah 
was invaded in 701 BC by Sennacherib, the kingdom, the king of Assyria, and he overran a lot of the smaller, unfortified cities. And uh, he and his army were preparing to lay siege to Jerusalem as the the capital city with its walls. And there's a lot of details about this, as I said in Second Kings, uh, especially in this 17 to 19. And so this is the context into which Isaiah is speaking. But it's not just a historical context. There's a theological context here. And we have to understand that God had made some promises and God always keeps his promises. Um, We see all throughout Isaiah there's messianic promises about who the Messiah is going to be, what his kingdom is going to be like. And we're going to look at some of that today. And we, we also see that in this time Isaiah prophesied to the people that Jerusalem would not fall to the Assyrians. Although it looked like it was a sure thing, that you've got this tiny little force in Jerusalem and this huge, huge imposing army. He tells them that Jerusalem will not fall. And so in the midst of this background, Isaiah is going to prophesy a judgment on the nations in Isaiah chapter 34, and he's going to prophesy a future blessing on God's people in chapter 35. So we're going to look really briefly at chapter 34, and then we're going to spend most of our time in 35. And this is, this is if you think about... Um, Isaiah's prophecy here is kind of uh, almost like a dream. It's like he goes to sleep and he has this horrible, horrible nightmare in chapter 34. This vision that God gives him of judgment. And it is really dark and it is really bad. And then it's like he wakes up and he has this other vision. And it's this most incredible dream about God's blessing and God's future for his people. So I just want to give you a flavor of what's happening in 34. Um, If you turn to Isaiah 34, listen to just a couple of these verses. I'm going to pick up in verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise and the mountains shall flow with their blood. In verse 9 and 10, he says, The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch or tar, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. You think about the horrendous fires that we've seen in Gatlinburg in the last couple of weeks, and that does not uh, even compare to what Isaiah is prophesying about here. And then verses 13 to 14, he says, Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas, the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there, shall, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. So there's going to be this huge contrast between God's judgment on the nations who have opposed God, who have mocked God, who have opposed God's people, and then the blessing and, the, and this transition to Isaiah 35. So I'm going to pick up in Isaiah 35.1. And, and really there's just two sections to this, to this prophecy here. Uh, Isaiah 35.1 and 2 talk about this future glory. And then 5 through 10 also talk about this future glory that God is, is going to bring. And 3 and 4 talk about the present 
How should people respond in the present? And so the way that I want to come at this this morning is a little bit out of order. I want us to look at 1 through 2 and then 5 through 10, and then we'll come back and look at 3 through 4. So let me just read this and and make some some comment as we go through. Isaiah 35.1, he says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Lord, and he says that in the coming of the Lord, the, the curse on nature is going to be reversed. The effects of the fall. We, we, we talk a lot at Three Rivers about this big picture idea of Scripture, and we understand God created the world and it was good, but we fell. And in Adam and Eve, when they chose sin, they fell and we inherited that sin and we all willingly choose our own sin. And because of that sin, in, at just the right time, God sent Jesus to, be, to become our redemption, to, die, to live the perfect life that we celebrate at Christmas, right? He was, he was born as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place and for our sins so that we could be redeemed. And we look forward to this coming consummation at the end that, that this passage is talking about. And so this passage looks forward to that, that ultimate consummation of this. And it says, when that happens, the wilderness and the dry land is going to blossom abundantly. It's going to look like these places, uh, the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and, and Sharon, these are the most beautiful places in, uh, in Israel. And he says, that's not going to hold a candle to even the desert. The dry places, the ugly places are going to be beautiful because creation, Romans tells us, Romans 8 tells us that creation itself is groaning, awaiting redemption, awaiting Christ's return. And this is a promise that that is going to be fulfilled that the most beautiful parts of redeemed creation um, are going to just explode in praise to our king. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Not only is the coming kingdom going to reverse some of the effects of the fall on nature, but it's gonna, the coming kingdom is going to reverse the curse of disease and sickness. Verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus, when he came and began his earthly ministry, these are the kind of things that he he began, right? And we've talked about the nature of the kingdom is that when Jesus came, he began to establish his kingdom. And we see that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully realized. We've, we've begun to see Jesus inaugurate his kingdom, but, but there is coming a fuller day. And this passage, um, I, didn't, I didn't connect this until I started studying this uh, the last couple of weeks, but do you remember in the New Testament when John the Baptist gets put in jail and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, they say, are you really the Christ? Is, is this really what we thought we were waiting on? Do you remember what Jesus responds to him? He basically quotes this passage. He tells him that the the blind have received their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead have been raised to life. He says, you know this Old Testament prophecy about what the kingdom's going to look like? Hey guys, I'm here. I'm doing this. The kingdom is here. So in, in in a very real way, the kingdom 
we're beginning to see the establishment of it, and yet it's not yet fully here. And we're, we're still looking forward to many things that, that he's going to do in reversing the curse of sin and disease. Um, in verses, verse 6 and 7, the second part of, of, of verse 6, it says, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Just as we read earlier in chapter 34 about the curse that will be on the land of Edom and on the nations who don't follow God, who mock God, who destroy God's people, uh, there is there's the opposite side of that coin, the blessing on the land. And he's going to bring a, a blessing to the land itself and turning streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground spring up with water. That's a great image. It's almost like the, you look at the desert and you see the, it's so hot. You know, you see the mirage. You see the, the heat just coming off of it. And then all of a sudden that becomes a lush garden area with pools of water. A place you'd really want to go hang out and just enjoy being. There is coming an ultimate redemption even to the land. But beyond that, there's even a greater redemption for God's people. And we see that in the, these last verses, 8 to 10. It says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In this passage, Isaiah talks about this highway to holiness. Um, a highway is a, is a path that you get on. It's a marked out path. It is a cleared path. It, it, you know, in, in our day, we're getting on four lane roads and you're, instead of putting around at 35, 40, you're going 65, 70, right? In their day, it meant that you could actually uh, get somewhere in, in a day if you're going a few miles. It meant that you could take a cart somewhere. It meant that it's a, a path that you could put a horse on. And in, very often, these were paths for kings themselves. And we see in this passage um, Isaiah prophesying about this highway to holiness that is Jesus himself. Jesus told us that he came to bring us to God, right? He said that he came to seek and save the lost. And he, he told us that he came to bring us to God. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 14? He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And then Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus comes back and says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. So this passage that Isaiah is prophesying, he understands and he, he tells about the Messiah. 
But there's a, there's a fulfillment of that that we even have greater clarity than he does. Look, we have the benefit of history. We have the benefit of looking back and seeing all the details of the way that Messiah came. And we can know that Jesus is our way. He is our only way uh, to the Father. And this highway, though, one of the things that we see here is this highway is only for those who have been ransomed. It is only for those who belong to the king. Verse 8 says, A highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. The unclean are not going to pass over it because it, it is only for those who have been made clean by Jesus. Not by something that we've done for ourselves, but because he has died in our place for our sin and we have believed and repented of our sin and we've accepted his work on our behalf and we have been called his. And what we see in verse 9 is that because he is our way and because he is our good shepherd, that there is nothing that can harm us as we are following him, as we're on this highway. Um, It says, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Jesus tells us that he is our good shepherd. In John 10, 10 10-15, he tells us that the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. We see this foretold even in Isaiah that the good shepherd will keep us on the path with him. And as Jesus tells us later, he is our good shepherd. He knows us and he will not lose any of his sheep. So this this passage has a fulfillment as, as all prophecy does. It has a fulfillment in the immediate term and it has a fulfillment later. And in the immediate term, the Israelites were tempted to doubt the goodness of God. They were tempted to doubt their rescue. And in fact, part of the reason they they ended up in the circumstances they were in in the first place was because they had been forced by Assyria to pay tribute and they thought, well, let's go over here with Egypt. Let's form an alliance with Egypt and let's just quit paying the Assyrians and tell them we're not paying you anything else tough. Leave us alone. And Assyria came in and crushed Egypt and was threatening to do the same uh, to, to Judah as well. And so there's this temptation to disbelieve God's promise and to despair that the, that the people had. And Isaiah comes back to tell them, no, you need to trust God. Jerusalem is not going to fall. There's also a temptation for us not to, to believe. Um, ultimately, in Judah's case, and you can read about this in, in uh, chapter 36 and 37 of Isaiah and also in 2 Kings uh, 16 and 17, King Sennacherib of Assyria sends his military leaders to come taunt Jerusalem. And they show up at the gate and they begin insulting the people and telling them how bad it's going to be for them and how 
uh, they're going to just be utterly destroyed and conquered. And they begin to insult not only the people, but also God himself. And telling them that the Israelites, that their God is nothing. And in the midst of this, Hezekiah prays to God and he seeks the counsel of Isaiah who reassures him and God rescues them. We're told in scripture that that God struck down 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians while they were in their camp. Not in battle, but just while they're in their camp. God, the angel of the Lord, came in and struck down 185,000 men. And Sennacherib, this great mighty king who was the military superpower of the day, tucks tail and runs home to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And later his two sons murder him and his kingdom is no more. God rescued his people through a means that seemed impossible to their eyes at that time. It seemed like there was no way that that could happen. But Isaiah told them to remain faithful and that God was going to rescue them. And we have, to, we have to have those same eyes of faith as well. When we look at our circumstances, uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense that God can rescue us to, our, to our, our physical eyes, to our rational ability. It doesn't make sense that God can work in our lives. But if we have the truth of Scripture, that we trust in what God has promised us, and we, we have eyes of faith to see what He can do and to believe what He has promised us, uh, we can trust Him for that. So back to, the, back to the present. We've looked at the future. We've looked at what, what Isaiah has promised is going to happen. What do we do in light of that? How do we live in light of that? Verses 3 and 4 tell us. Isaiah says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. We can be strong when we know God is coming to save us. We can hold on a little bit longer when we know God is coming to save us. We can trust in His promises and believe in His goodness when we know that God never breaks His promises. We see throughout Isaiah, there there are over a hundred prophecies just throughout Isaiah, that every single one of them has come true or is coming true. Every single one of them. And so God always keeps his promises. God is always faithful. And when he tells us that he will come and save us, we can believe that. We can put our faith in that. So verse verse 3 tells us to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And verse 4 is a communal response to that. For us to encourage each other. It says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, He will come and save you. This is is part of why we need community. This is part of why we need each other to say this to each other. When we have an anxious heart, to say, Behold, your God is coming and He's going to save you. We need to be able to encourage each other when we can't get our eyes above what our circumstances are, when we have blinders on, and we can't see anything else than what is right in front of us at the time. We need each other to say, hey, God has promised you and God is faithful. We need each other to encourage us with the words of Scripture. So how do we, how do we live in light of this reality of our king's coming. 
I want to give us just a few applications as, as we begin to wrap this passage up um, and, and then also look at, a, at another passage briefly. Um, how do we live in the light of the reality of our King's coming? The first thing that we need to do is we need to repent of our sin and we need to believe what God has done. You know, the, the response for each of us Every day ought to be a lifestyle of repentance that we are constantly turning from our sin. We're constantly even turning from our doubt and disbelief in God to a belief in God. We're agreeing with God about our sin. We're agreeing with him about doubt. We're agreeing with him about circumstances, but also agreeing about his forgiveness for us, his grace to us, his promise to us, his faithfulness to us individually and corporately. And so part of this season of Advent is a season in which We look back and we also look forward and we want to be ready for our King's coming. And one of the ways that we get ready is we we let go of this sin that so easily entangles us. And we look to our King, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we repent and believe and and we see that as we do that, He blesses us with redemption and adoption in the kingdom. I think secondly, we need to believe the Bible's message of our future glory and God's love for his own. There's another passage of scripture that was penned, kind of like Isaiah 35, to, to those that were undergoing great difficulty. It's probably familiar to many of you, but I want to read it because I think it helps us. This is another passage of scripture that helps us lift our eyes and see what God is doing sometimes behind the veil. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to pick up uh, in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you hear that this morning. I hope that resonates in your soul. I hope that encourages you this morning to stay the course with God, to believe the truth of what he has told us. I think biblical belief looks like living in a way that only makes sense if God's promises are true. That only makes sense if God's promises are true. That was true for Israel. There was no way that they should sit back and trust. If if God's promises were not true, there was no way they should sit back and trust and wait on God to kill 185,000 soldiers and, and save them. If there is no God, there is... If God's promises are, no, are not true, there's, there's nothing about our faith that makes sense. But his promises are absolutely true. And he calls us to live in a way that demonstrates our faith that his word to us is true. 
And so there's a personal application for that, but there's also a corporate application. As I said, we need to encourage each other. We need to help each other lift our eyes from our present circumstances to see our king. This passage from Isaiah 35 gets picked up by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. And I'd love for you to turn there with me. I want to hang out there for just a few minutes as, as we wrap up. Because this passage, what I see here is, is the author of Hebrew encouraging, exhorting, pushing, pulling, tugging, saying, hey, there's a community aspect here that we need to encourage each other in the faith. Hebrews 11 he tells us about this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, right? These, all these saints that have gone before us, that have lived faithful lives, some of whom never saw the reward that was promised to them. In chapter 12, he tells us, because we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, we should lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is, setting before, that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that God disciplines those who are his children. And that a sign that we are his is that he loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to conform us to the image of Christ. And, and the author of Hebrews picks up this passage from Isaiah in verse 12. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There's a somber warning for us here, and there's also an encouragement for us here. Um, in verse 14, we're told that we should be at peace. In verses 14 to 16, we're told that without holiness... There's no way that we will see God. And the only way that we have holiness is through the peace of Christ on our behalf. It's through the shed blood of Jesus, through our uh, repentance of sin and his, his forgiveness on our behalf. But we're told without that, we won't see God. We won't experience what Isaiah 35 tells us is the ultimate reward for those who belong to him. And in verse 17, this is, this is one of those really stark warnings in Scripture. He tells us that there comes a point if we are cavalier about our sin, and uh, he gives us this example of Esau, there comes a point sometimes when repentance is not even possible anymore. And Esau sought it with tears, and yet it was too late for him. One of the scariest passages of Scripture, I think, is, is Hebrews chapter 6 that describes what this looks like for those that have tasted the goodness of God, and then turn away. And we're told that if, if that happens, they're unable to be renewed to repentance. Um, so again, there's a, there's a communal aspect of here for us to encourage each other, to push, to pull, to tug, to, to pat each other on the back. Sometimes we need a swift kick in the pants to say, hey, get with the program. 
Follow Jesus. Trust Jesus. Walk with him. How can I help you today? How can I love you today? How can I encourage you today? In this passage in Isaiah 35, we see that the Israelites were rescued from this, what looked like sure destruction. Um, But we also see later in their history that they quickly turned back away from God again. And they quickly fell back into rebellious sin against God. And ultimately, God used the nation of Babylon, which, which overtook the Assyrians. He used Babylon to judge them. Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 586, and he deported and resettled many of the people. And yet God was not unfaithful to his promise, because just as we looked at Isaiah 11 last week, that there would be a remnant that God would leave, and there would be a stump that would come from Jesse's root, and, and uh, there would be a shoot that would come from that, that stump, God was faithful to his word. And, and he did that, and ultimately he sent Jesus to be born in that line of David to be our Redeemer. So a couple of more, I guess, points of application. One of the things that I, I, I always come back to is we need to act on what we know to be true in following Jesus. There's a, you know, I learned a lot looking at this passage this week. I hope that maybe there's some, some connections you've made this, this morning even as well. But regardless of how much of the Bible we know, we're, we're, we're exhorted and we should be studying the Bible. We should be reading the Bible regularly. But every single one of us knows enough that we could spend the rest of our life applying what we know, living what we know. And so we need to act based on what we already know in doing to follow Jesus and uh, in applying what it means to be his followers. As we look at this passage in Isaiah 2, we, see, we saw this, this stark judgment in chapter 34 for those that did not belong to God and the blessing in chapter 35 for those that did. That ought to lead us to be sharing our faith with our neighbors and our friends and our family. That ought to lead us to a, a reality that that horrific judgment is a sure thing. It's coming. And we don't want anybody to experience that. So we need to be sharing this blessing that God has given us with others so they don't experience that judgment. And the last response of this, we need to worship. We need to come to God and praise his name for all that he has done for us. Isaiah 35.10 says that we're going to worship with great joy. That's going to happen in the, in the kingdom ultimately when it's fulfilled. It ought to start now. We ought to be the kind of people that when he comes, he finds us worshiping. He finds us praising him. He finds us living a life that is consistent with the song that we sing. Living a life that is consistent with the words that we proclaim. So I want to invite you to stand this morning as we prepare to respond to the scriptures in worship. Respond to what what God has, has spoken to us in worship. And let's sing to him this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that uh, when we teach and preach your word, we uncage the truth that is, that is powerful. And I pray that that word will take root in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would cause us to see your goodness, your glory, 
your kingdom, that we would pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in, in our lives and on earth as it is in heaven. Father, be with us this morning. Inhabit the praise of your people. Help us to lift our eyes uh, from what we see in front of us into the throne room. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.